Hi, this is Bill Whalen, the host of Goodfellows. Thanks for listening to the audio version of the show, but we wanted to let you know that Goodfellows is primarily a video production, and you're missing a lot of extra features by only listening to our show. Give it a look by going to hoover.org forward slash Goodfellows to see what you're missing. Thanks. It's Thursday, February the 8th, 2024, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, joined by our full complement of our Goodfellows, as we jokingly refer to them. I would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist, former Presidential National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. Neil, John, and H.R. are all Hoover Institution Senior Fellows. Guys, it's good to see you today, and sadly, we all have very heavy hearts today, and that's because the Hoover Institution has suffered a terrible loss, so I'd like to spend a moment on this before we get on with the show. Um, as I mentioned last week, the Hoover Institution had a real jolt, and that was the sudden, very unexpected loss of Karen Weiss Mulder, who, along with her husband James, died tragically in an automobile accident last Friday. Uh, Karen was the Hoover Institution's chief operating officer and chief financial officer, she did more, though, than merely manage the money and keep the books. If you were trying to get a project off the ground, trying to get someone hired, you'd go to Karen. And if your idea made sense and she had a great head for these things, she'd come up with a solution for you. Karen loved the Hoover Institution. She loved to find creative ways to advance our programs and allow fellows like Neil and John in HR to carry on with their research and do the great work that they do. And she was, by the way, a fan of Goodfellows, I'm happy to report. Karen was more than a colleague to many of us who knew her both in and outside the office. She was a friend, a mentor, a North Star, and just a lot of fun to be around, and I can attest to that personally. To Karen's son, Zach, to Karen and James' extended families and their circle of friends, we share in your grief. To say that Karen will be difficult to replace would be a gross understatement. Her death leaves a very large hole in our organization and an even bigger hole in our hearts. But we take comfort in having known her in the last two decades uh, that she called the Hoover Institution home. Godspeed, Karen and James. We miss you. Gentlemen, we have two topics to discuss today. Um, I want to get into a column that John Cochran wrote for the Wall Street Journal. John venturing outside the world of grumpy economics into the world of politics and asking the question of Donald Trump's uh, popularity and why it is that Trump's detractors don't get it. But first, I want to turn our attention to the Middle East and events that occurred since the last time we did our show. The last episode of Goodfellas was January the 26th. Two days after, on January the 28th, three U.S. service members were killed in a drone attack on a remote outpost post in Jordan. Five days after that, February the 2nd, the U.S. carries out strikes on more than 85 targets in Syria and Iraq. The next day, February the 3rd, the U.S. and British warplanes launched strikes against dozens of sites in Yemen controlled by Houthi militants. The day after that, February the 4th, the U.S. forces destroyed a Houthi cruise missile believed to have been pointed toward U.S. ships in the Red Sea. Then finally, yesterday, February the 7th, the U.S. drone strike in Baghdad takes out a high-ranking commander of the Kataib Hezbollah militia connected with the aforementioned attack on the U.S. troops in Jordan. H.R., I want to start with you. In 1996, a book was published by the National Defense University. Its title was Shock and Awe, Achieving Rapid Dominance. I imagine that you read the book. You lived the book because shock and awe was the theme behind the U.S. attack on uh, uh, Iraq in 2003. I know that this is 2024. It's not 2003. The goal here is not rapid dominance. The goal is not taking out a regime in Baghdad. It's trying to change the mind of a regime in Tehran. But H.R., here's my question. Attacking 85 targets simultaneously is an impressive use of force, we can all agree. Taking out a militia leader in Baghdad, I understand the drone hit a car that he was in. This is something straight out of a James Bond movie. This is pretty remarkable intelligence and technology. But the question in HR, does this really change matters in the Middle East? Does all of this retaliatory action, does it really move us forward toward deterrence? You know, it can it can play a role in res restoring deterrence, Bill. But you you don't really accomplish outcomes with strikes, right? And and uh, you know, my friend and historian Conrad Crane had a great essay uh, in in the early two thousands called "The Lure of the Strike," and it makes you feel good. And at the, a lot of times, it's important it's important to impose costs on an enemy like Iran's proxy network. Uh, that go beyond the costs that they factor in when they conduct aggression against us. And that aggression was at least you know, 165 attacks against U.S. facilities and U.S. personnel since October 7th, uh, since the, the, the horrendous attack against Israel. 
So you can, you can't, it's a step in, in the right direction, Bill, but it, it's on, it's not going to be decisive in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You. I'm struggling uh, to make sense of the administration's Middle East policy. We've discussed this before, but I, I could never really understand why they wanted to try to resuscitate the Iran nuclear deal, uh, cut some slack to Tehran, and uh, in the process, I think inadvertently derail what had been going so well under the previous administration, the Abraham Accords and the progress towards reconciliation between Israel and, and the Arab states. It never seemed likely to me to work, and it always had an, uh, an obvious downside risk that Iran would feel emboldened and would also be uh, financially in a better position to encourage uh, its proxies in the region to make trouble. Uh, and this is exactly what's happened. Uh, and it's happened in ways that the administration clearly didn't expect. Uh, otherwise, Jake Sullivan wouldn't have published his essay in Foreign Affairs, confidently saying that all was well in the region, uh, only uh, days before catastrophe struck on October the 7th. I don't think Iran is being deterred by any of this. My sources in the region say that these attacks are very carefully calibrated and signposted uh, so that they have almost a demonstrative quality, symbolic rather than militarily valuable quality, and they don't directly hurt Iran. Uh, and Iran therefore feels it can continue to make mischief in the region with something close to impunity until Iran is made to pay a price uh, for the antics of its, its proxies. It's highly disruptive antics because not only are lives being lost, but global trade is being subjected to considerable uh, distortion by the uh, actions of the Houthis in the Red Sea. I think the region is going to be in a very unstable state. And I was much struck by Bill Burns's article in Foreign Affairs, which struck a very different tone from the article Jake Sullivan published. This is an article that just came out by the Director of Central Intelligence saying that he cannot remember seeing the Middle East. Uh, in a more dangerous state than it is now. But I have to say that's a terrible indictment of the administration's uh, policy. I think this could be salvaged, but it's getting harder and harder because I'll say one more thing. I still don't really see a good end game for Israel in Gaza that doesn't uh, leave uh, Israel exposed to attack from Hezbollah and Lebanon. And so the core of this problem, which is the greater insecurity Israel has been uh, experiencing, looks very difficult to fix. And it's almost impossible to see it getting fixed if the Biden administration is not only doing too little to deter Iran, but it seems more concerned to lean on Israel to wind up its military operation against Hamas. In short, I find the strategy baffling, and I don't see a good uh, end game. Well, let me try to be the... Uh... I'll be the simpleton here who gets to unbaffle uh, us, please. <laughs> put, put well, I'll, I'll put up the view that you guys can swat down, uh, and maybe that'll make you more effective. Uh, it seems to me we're at the stage of, um, you know, the stage of a bar fight where the two guys are pushing each other to show who's tougher. And my initial reaction was, uh, <clears throat> I've never been in a bar fight, but the advice I've heard is land the first punch and land it well. Sort of what HR said, you know, sort of the Powell Doctrine. We don't do things for show. You do things only to completely diminish the uh, the uh, opponent's uh, ability to fight, and you you fight to win. But um, there's a good Wall Street Journal article that I sent around, and we talked a little bit about email, that, that led me to, to rethink things. And here we're kind of turning around. On, on Ukraine, originally, I, I was the hawk, and Neil was, oh, don't die. we don't want to escalate and and uh, endanger that uh, thing. And here I'm, I'm wondering. I, I have been influenced to think that maybe what the Biden administration is doing is not so bad. Uh, Iran clearly wants to keep out of a major war. They want to have their proxies cause trouble, but just enough to stay out of a major war. And it's not clear Iran completely controls these guys. Uh, they, uh, you know, they all have their independent ideas of what to do. You know, some of them are Sunni, some of them are Shiites, and some of them are Persians, and not everybody here gets along <laughs> to, to start with. Uh, <clears throat> where are we? There has been no Hezbollah war yet. Uh, Saudi Arabia still quietly wants to pursue uh, a peace accord with Israel eventually. 
uh, that involves some sort of promises about two-state solution, and nobody ever talks about exactly what that means. Uh, you know, will the Palestinian state say, "Yeah, we recognize the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state"? That's sort of like number one, and that's the one that isn't happening. But um, is it so bad uh, to try to keep this at the pushing stage of the bar fight, uh, and um, and and keep it from turning into a major attacking Iran? would turn it into the major war that we're trying to dance around not doing. So why, why am I so dumb here? Hey, I'd just like to point out that, you, you, you know, the problem with that, John, is, is that Iran is pursuing a strategy based on its the ideology of the revolution and the objectives, the associated objectives to, uh, to really expand uh, Iran's hegemonic influence across the region, push the United States out of the region as the first step uh, in in what that ultimately seeks is the destruction of Israel, and but, I mean, and uh, they did and not so, send Hezbollah to start a, a major war. So they are still they're willing to do this so long as it doesn't involve a big war with Iran. Well, but, well, right uh, now, right now they're doing everything on their own terms because they're they're holding back the hundred and fifty thousand or so rockets uh, in Hezbollah to deter Israel and deter us from direct strikes on on Iran. And what that does is that also gives them, as Neil mentioned, really the ability to escalate this fight on their own terms with impunity. Their strategy is, is essentially to expend as many Arab lives as necessary uh, in pursuit of their objectives uh, to keep the Arab world perpetually weak and enmeshed in sectarian civil wars uh, and uh, to assemble essentially proxy army and terrorist organizations around Israel so they can implement this you know, ring of fire strategy. So as long as we play by their rules, by acting like we don't know what the return address is, they get to pursue that strategy essentially with impunity and at really no cost. Uh, well, what are you guys? What are you guys arguing for? So should the U.S. strike Iran? Now we just agreed we don't necessarily think strikes widely telegraphed in advance so that nobody gets hurt. Strikes to show how tough you are might not yeah. be the greatest idea. Do you, you know, serious strikes to seriously degrade their military capacity, you know, sink their whole navy or something of the sort. What, what do you well, guys think yeah. we actually well, should I, do about Iran? I, I think, you know, I, I think, it, you know, if when you use acts of war, right, bombing to send a signal or to communicate what you've heard over and over again, I think that's ludicrous, right? Because using bombs <laughs> involves killing and killing unleashes a psychological dynamic that goes far beyond any kind of diplomatic you know communication i mean this is what i wrote about on in the in the in the run-up to the americanization of the vietnam war is that this this the same assumption was made and the, the same language was used by by the by the mcnamara pentagon and 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 uh robert uh, robert f kennedy or, or john f kennedy's i'm sorry and lyndon johnson's uh advisors um and, and so they, they looked at you know, covert operations against North Vietnam. They looked at the first bombing of North Vietnam to communicate our resolve. Well, what that did is that elicited a response uh, from, from North Vietnam, which was to intensify their support for Vietnamese communists in the South, and then ultimately to compel the deployment uh, of US troops. So you have to always think about what happens next. You know, your enemy has a say in the future course of events. But I think in this case, Imposing costs on Iran that go beyond what they factored in is immensely important to get them to to throttle back their use of these proxy forces. I mean, there there is a, you know there's a ship sitting right off the coast of uh, Djibouti. It's called the Bashad. It's an Iranian ship that collects all the intelligence on uh, on on the, on the targets for uh, you know for um, for the Houthis. Why isn't that ship sunk? Well, they they they, they sought you know harbor. Uh, in, in Djiboutian waters, but I don't think that should make any difference at this point. Uh, there are other actions you could take as well. You could eliminate the entire fleet, uh, including the ROGC's fleet, and, and vessels that, that are critical to smuggling missiles back you know, into, uh, into, into Yemen, um, oftentimes, most often, across uh, Oman. So they make a short dash across the Gulf and then move these uh, move these. Uh, uh, these missiles, components of these missiles over land, but you could begin to interdict that route uh, as well, put more pressure on the Omanis to, to help do that. You can employ some special operations forces to, to do that, as you've seen with the, 
the two seals who made the ultimate sacrifice and in, uh, in uh, just a, a week ago, in an attempt to interdict a, a ship that was that was reseeding these these missiles. But then, you know, this has to be placed in context of Iran's nuclear program as well. And I know you've been following the news of you know the last week or so, the a further acceleration of their enrichment of, of more and more uranium, uh, the race that they're apparently making to get to a threshold nuclear capability. And of course, once they have that, then I think they feel as if they can continue this proxy war with complete impunity. So I think what you're going to see is at some stage, the opening of the Northern Front. And this is debatable, but I believe that Hezbollah will be brought into this fight. You're going to see a, a massive intensification of attacks uh, against uh, Israel and Isra Israeli assets in the West Bank uh, simultaneously. Uh, and then then I think you're going to see you know massive attacks against uh, US forces uh, again with, with these proxies in Iraq. The Houthis aren't going away. And until you go after Iran directly, it's all going to continue. It's just going to escalate on their terms like that. I believe that Israel's already decided, because Israel's a big factor in this too, on what happens next. I believe they've already decided to reinvade southern Lebanon because they, they, they have concluded they cannot have a terrorist organization on their border with those kinds of capabilities. That's, that's the big lesson relearned from October 7th. And, and then and then also, I think Israel's already decided <laughs> they'll do everything they can to go after Iran's mis missile and, and nuclear program. Uh, that'll be in the form of all kinds of you know covert operations and maybe in cyberspace or assassinations, other forms of attack. But ultimately, once they have the capability, they're going to go directly against those targets. So, you know, I don't, this is not going to get any better. And, and certainly Iran is not going to uh, moderate this behavior until we impose costs directly on them. And I, I think... You know, step A might be sink that damn ship that's sitting right across, you know, right across, uh, you know, the, the, uh, from Yemen uh, and helping the Houthis direct their attacks. Neil, I want to turn to a column that you wrote in the Daily Mail, the headline, uh, The Gathering Storm. I think it's also a title of a Churchill book, also an HBO movie based on that. And uh, thank you for the column, Neil, because I took Latin for five years in prep school and you actually put some Latin, the Roman maxim, civis pacem parabellum. What does that translate to, Neil, and what was the purpose of your column? What were you getting at? Uh, the old Roman adage states, uh, if you want peace, prepare for war. And uh, my concern, which relates uh, not so much to the United States as to Europe and the United Kingdom, is that American allies have, uh, being, have been doing anything but, but prepare for war. Defense budgets have for a long time been uh, historically at, at very low levels, in some cases below 2% of gross domestic product, which is far below the levels we saw in the 20th century uh, during the Cold War, of course, uh, during the World Wars. And it, it's no coincidence, I think, that this period of very uh, low expenditure on uh, military preparedness has been a period when uh, authoritarian states have become bolder about challenging uh, what is, after all, the Pax Americana. We, we call it a liberal world order, but it's an American world order. And without the United States, which accounts for, I think, 69% of total NATO military spending, there really would uh, be very little order left. So I think there's a major problem here. Uh, and the problem is that uh, Russia is gaining uh, the upper hand in Ukraine. Uh, that's something that's a, a really striking feature of uh, uh, current developments in that theater of conflict. Uh, Israel, as I said, does not have great options uh, in a situation that seems to me increasingly worse than the 1973 crisis uh, half a century uh, ago. We dodged something of a bullet in January when the Chinese did not react, as I feared they might, to the Taiwanese election. Sometimes in history, it's the things that don't matter that are really significant, don't happen, excuse me, that are really significant. And, and the fact that there wasn't a Taiwan crisis in January was a very important thing. But it could still happen. And the Chinese have other options too. The Philippines, uh, which is under increasing pressure uh, from the Chinese government. And I mustn't leave out of this account the uh, increasingly threatening behavior of the North Korean regime. So because uh, the Western powers, the allies of the United States in particular, are not really uh, preparing for war, they're making the risk of war greater all the time. 
And uh, and this is a, a I think where Churchill does seem an appropriate author to refer to. Churchill always called uh, World War II the unnecessary war on the ground that if only there had been adequate rearmament in the 1930s, Hitler and the other Axis powers might have been deterred. Well, it, it seems to me that we're living through a period when we're consistently failing to deter an increasingly emboldened and well-organized uh, authoritarian Axis. I don't like analogies with the 1930s because I think they've been overused a great deal uh, in the past uh, half century. But it just gets harder and harder to look at the world today and not see a gathering storm. John? Well, can I just cheer? <laughs> Let me add, it, as the economist here, it matters not just how much you spend, but that you spend it wisely. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the numbers of how many, you know, tanks and guns that like Germany has left, uh, military spending numbers include pensions and health care and <laughs> so forth. So a lot of even the numbers that we talk about are are not being spent on on things that are important. And it's very easy to spend a lot of money, especially in the U.S., on overpriced weapon systems that will um, go down to the bottom of the sea in the first five minutes of the war. So it has to be spent wisely. And, and uh, one number I saw, I hope I didn't say this on a previous show, U.S. has 0.5% of the world's shipbuilding capacity. China has 50%. Uh, when we uh, we built a nearly identical uh, frigate as South Korea did, it cost us three times as much. Um, you, you, you need to spend it on the right things and you need to spend it wisely. Maybe HR will tell us what the right things are. More army, right? Well, no, it's, it's the whole joint force. I mean, I, you know, I was, I, was, I was joking last time, but you need all the tools because, you know, there's no silver bullet technology, right? And you know, we've just spent uh, 200, about $250 million in in missiles uh, in, in uh, you know, in the Bab el-Mandeb and in the Red Sea uh, to shoot down about uh, of anti-missile missiles to shoot down about $5 million worth of, of Houthi missiles. So, you know, there, 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 there are new contracts being let. There's a new Andro contract you might have just seen on, on uh, a really sophisticated, relatively low-cost anti-drone capability. The British just tested uh, a directed energy anti-drone and anti-missile capability that's, that's quite inexpensive relative to, to what we have now. So the technologies exist. But as you're saying, uh, John, you know, we, we, we lack the ability to rapidly procure these capabilities and field them in units. And this is what we have to get better at. I mean, one way to do that is to look for, you know, th these opportunities to enhance existing systems with these kinds of defenses, right? So you don't need a, another new big thing, but you can add some little and very capable things onto the big thing, you know, and this is, this is called Project uh, Replicator in the Department of Defense. But as we mentioned last time, I think we talked about it like two episodes ago, you need long-term predictable contracts, you know, so that you can send the signal to defense companies, you know, who are, they're not charitable organizations, you know, they got to turn a profit. So if they, if they have a strong long-term demand signal, they'll invest, you know, in the additional production lines and improve our capacity. Let's do an exit question. Let's make it very quick. If we look at the Middle East as a game of poker right now, who is going to raise the stakes? Will it be the U.S. and its allies with more retaliatory strikes, or will it be Iran and its proxies with more strikes? I wouldn't be surprised if it was Israel for Israel. the reason that HR mentioned earlier. I don't think they can afford to let Hezbollah strike the first blow. Uh, it's not going to be this week or next week, but at some point things are going to come to a head on the, the Lebanese border. HR, yeah. what's your guess? Well, I think it could be on the Lebanese border, and it could be because Israel's already kind of kicking Hezbollah's ass right now. Because what Hezbollah's been doing is they've been engaged in these kind of performative attacks themselves. Uh, against Israel, you know, firing kind of like the eight kilometer range uh, anti-tank missiles, some of their rockets. But in return, they've gotten more than they've bargained for. And the Israelis have taken out some of their missile stocks and inflicted some significant losses on them. Uh, also, you know, the, the 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 fight against Hamas, you know, as ugly and difficult as this is with the subterranean uh, fight there, Israel has defeated about 17 of the 24 Hamas so-called battalions. That doesn't mean every one of those fighters are gone, right? And many of them have, are now in, in pockets of resistance and mm -hmm. and, uh, and and using you know uh, guerrilla and terrorist tactics. But but the fight in in Gaza from Israel's perspective is actually going pretty well from a military perspective. I think they have mismanaged, as I mentioned, the information more. They could have done done more, you know, to uh, to provide maybe humanitarian assistance under their control. Um, 
So, but, but, but overall militarily it's, it's going well for them. And I think, as I mentioned, you know, that, you know, earlier, uh, Israel's already made the decision to ensure that Hezbollah doesn't have those capabilities uh, on its border. But to, to your question, man, I mean, you know, Iran thinks it's all going in their favor right now for all the reasons Neil mentioned. I mean, we essentially, they have concluded, I think, that they can continue to intensify this war with relative impunity because we still have enacted as if we know what the real return address is for these attacks. Mm-hmm. John? Iran, Iran is going to keep ramping up minor provocations that don't cause an explosion, right? They are not going to, uh, in the near term, now there, there comes the moment when they send a missile and flatten Tel Aviv, and that is something they've talked about wanting to do for a long time. It's certainly not going to be the U.S. who ramps it up. We are obviously in reactive mode, and I think we've just learned in Ukraine how long the U.S. attention span is for bucking up our allies, two years. Um, and, you know, as we think in, in wider terms, you, you know, even talking about fighting the war in Taiwan, this U.S. is going to actually send our own military across uh, an ocean uh, to defend someone else's land. You need not just the means, you need the will and the strategy and the determination to use it, uh, which the Ukrainians had plenty of while they had nothing else. So I, 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 anyway, I, I doubt we are going to be the ones who raise the ante. And, and hey, just, just Bill, just uh, I want to highlight Neil's, Neil gave just a great summary of the interconnected nature of these cascading crises. And so for, you know, for those who make kind of the specious argument, hey, well, we can't support Ukraine because we really need, you know, the, the, those weapons for the Indo-Pacific region. You know, the, the perception of Russia winning in Ukraine or Iran being able to defeat defeat us in the Middle East will certainly embolden Xi Jinping. And, and the, the longer those conflicts go and seem to be going in the direction of, I would call it the axis of aggressors, right? Then, then Iran. I mean, then uh, then China's going to at least take advantage of our preoccupation in these other in these other areas. So, I think this our desire to prevent this war from cascading these wars cascading into the Indo Pacific is a very strong argument for Congress getting off their ass, you know, and providing the assistance uh, to Israel and, and Ukraine that they need. Okay, uh, let's move on to the B block. John Cochran, you get to wear a lot of hats on this show. You're obviously our in-house economist. You get to uh, play a historian along with Neil and HR. You get to play a geostrategist along with your colleagues. Today, you get to be a political scientist, my friend. I'm referring to the column you wrote in the Wall Street Journal. The headline, Incompetent Elites Make Trump Look Appealing. Subhead, his supporters don't love everything about him, but are sick of being disdained and miscovered. John, your column ran on February the 2nd, which is Groundhog Day. One of my favorite movies. It's a movie about a weatherman in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, who has to uh, suffer through the festivities of that day. He goes to sleep that night. He wakes up the next day, and it's Groundhog Day again and again and again and again. I mentioned this, John, because I read your column. I started thinking, back in 2016, what did we have? We had people fed up with politicians. We had the public upset about immigration. We had a very weak Democratic opponent running against Donald Trump, people who didn't like Trump, just not taking him seriously, and Trump won. I'm not saying Trump's going to win, but John, it's Yogi Berra said deja vu all over again. It's 2024, in fact, 2016. No. <laughs> no. But there is, a, I think, a lot of 2016 turned on that one word, deplorables. Um, yep. And what I tried to do in the column uh, is a lot of um, never-Trump Republicans and most Democrats cannot fathom that majorities of people in surveys are saying they're going to vote for Trump. What? Who are these people? Um, deplorables, racists, um, white supremacists. But you have to get your hand. If your view of the world is that, you know, maybe 2% of the people should be voting for Trump and half of them are, you've got to understand, if you believe in democracy, who are our fellow citizens? So I, I tried my best to put a finger on it. Um, and... Uh, um, when you look at what's happened in the last four years, that what makes it more than 2016 is not just the deplorables attitudes. Um, it, it it goes back, but it is the politicized incompetence of so much of our government institutions. Uh, now it goes back to, um, among other things, the financial crisis, when a lot of people in Trump's America lost jobs and businesses um, and learned that financial regulators don't know what they're doing. In the COVID era, we learned that our our public health authorities were um, censorious and politicized. And I think uh, you can just tell one of the major things animating Trump supporters 
is the legal persecution of uh, Donald Trump. Now, you know, many of us can go on with the fine points of just why Trump's documents are so much worse than Biden's documents or how awful it is for a Manhattan real estate uh, speculator to uh, have overstated the value of his properties on loans or misuse of campaign funds uh, for, no, an, a, a, in lieu of campaign funds, a, uh, a, a contribution, uh, hush payments to a porn star and so forth. But what many people see is uh, the justice system being used for uh, political purposes. And today the Supreme Court is is going on with uh, the uh, state of Colorado trying to kick Trump off the ballot um, on the ground season or insurrections. And I'll, I'll just say my next column <laughs> will be about <laughs> something I'm going to say on every show until it happens. We are heading straight to constitutional crisis over this particular, over this lawfare, over using the legal system for uh, political uh, for political means, you know, it's, if Trump wins, uh, you know, they, the Democrats will say he's illegitimate. They'll try to be, deny him office in the House. And just think about where it goes if an entire political party has has committed itself to believing that the uh, the other side is illegitimate. And like, of course, Trump already set that script. He just won't own the Justice Department if he's out of us in, in office. He said already he's going to use the Justice Department to do unto them like they're doing unto him. So we're heading in, in very dangerous ways. And, and middle America wants its country back. Competent, apolitical bureaucracies, uh, you know, give us return to normalcy, as I think Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge said it. Neil? Well, it's it's a tough one because I don't think it's 2016 all over again. Uh, that That's partly because uh, Trump is a known quantity uh, seeking a second term and in some ways polling more strongly than he did at this point in 2016 uh, when he still seemed uh, an outsider, a long shot, uh, if you remember, there was still considerable skepticism eight years ago that he would get the nomination. Uh, now he's he's almost as much the incumbent as as Joe Biden, uh, and it's also worth remembering that that Joe Biden's increasingly obvious frailty. I mean, who confuses Macron with Mitterrand uh, is an argument for Trump all by itself, uh, and that's I think another important difference uh, with with 2016. What's odd to me, and, and I know we're going to talk about it, is that for reasons that are, are hard to fathom, the Democrats have created a huge vulnerability with the, their handling of the southern border. And they did it almost as soon as the Biden administration came into office. Uh, if there's one issue that populists historically gain from it's a perception of uncontrolled illegal immigration right. and that's going to shift a lot of votes uh over uh, to donald trump you know i read a a very interesting uh, uh interview uh last week with my old friend andrew sullivan who if you remember eight years ago said if trump's elected it's the end of the constitution it's the end of the republic he was one of the most uh the most vociferous uh never trump writers on the right. But in this interview, uh, to his great credit, he, he acknowledges the things that he was wrong about and the things that Trump is right about that make Trump likely, highly likely in his view, to win. I don't think it's that certain. And here's the interesting thing. While people are furious about, furious about the border and also, I think, somewhat nostalgic for the Trump economy, there's, there's one thing that can still trip him up. And, and that is if he's convicted in uh, one of the criminal cases. The polling on this is really striking. In the swing states, if you ask people how you're going to vote, Trump wins. If you ask them how you're going to vote if there's a criminal conviction, it's a different outcome because independents and, and other less MAGA voters are really quite influenced by uh, the notion of a candidate with a criminal conviction. In that sense, the law courts are, as John says, a really important part of the story. I mean, we're talking on a day when the Supreme Court is weighing whether Trump could be uh, legally removed from the, the ballot in uh, in a state such as Colorado. I don't think there's any way of getting uh, the law out of this election. It's quite possible that the law could decide it. 
Right. I want to talk about immigration, but first, HR, let me read a few words from John Cochran to you and get your thoughts. And here's what John wrote. What should Democrats do? Answer, listen. Stop screaming your talking points and hyperventilating that Trump is a dictator in waiting. Stop falling into the obvious trap. Trump is gifted at provoking ridiculous overreaction from his opponents. You promised moderation, openness, conciliation, and simple competence. You delivered the opposite. It is still possible to acknowledge, listen, and pivot. Yeah, well, I always agree with John, you know, but but and I, I would just I would just amplify that comment by, you know, they've actually engaged in behavior that was at least equally egregious of what they accused Trump of. You know, of course, they accused Trump of politicizing the military. Then they put these people into into political positions who are pushing this nonsensical, you know, woke agenda on the military. And the military is resisting it. Right. But right. Uh, and and uh, and uh, the military is not woke. But there are people who would love to see it, uh, you know, in the same condition as the academy's in right now, you know, uh, and and then the, the, of course the, you know they they're talking about uh, you know really trying to to improve uh, you know energy security and so forth. Well, well at the same time you know they're they're putting a moratorium on on U.S. Uh, 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 permits for U.S. LNG export facilities. Which is only going to result in you know, countries like you know, Venezuela and and Iran, you know, exporting uh, or you know, or the Gutteries exporting more LNG. I mean, the policies just don't make sense. You know, they're they're like the the opposite of what what makes sense. So I think you know this is going to get, really bring even more supporters uh, to to anybody who's in opposition to these policies. I'm hoping you know that that people will also recognize that. Uh, that John is right in this essay that Americans want Washington to be disrupted. There's a lot in Washington that needs to be disrupted. But sadly, you know, uh, you know Donald Trump is so disruptive that he disrupts his own agenda. You know, so he's not the person to, who can actually do it. You know, so and I think this is the argument that that uh, that that Ambassador Haley's trying to make as well. Um, and maybe. You know, Neil, uh, with, you know, with a recognition of all these legal troubles, even if, as John mentioned, you know, the, these may reflect to, to a degree like what you're know, weaponizing justice, you know, uh, and against, uh, you know, against uh, a, a political opponent. I mean, if, if people can believe that, but also maybe believe that all this drama around him and all the focus on himself uh, is is distracting, you know, and, and would prevent him from delivering the kind of results that the American people would want to see. If I could quickly add, I know you want to move on. Um, the advice in the piece for Nikki Haley was explain that you understand a little more clearly than she has the frustrations people have with how things have worked, but tell people you are the you are the person who is going to be able to get that done. Trump is going to be in legal chaos the entire four years of, of his next presidency. And she can explain, I think, quite well about that. Trump is amazingly good at um create at getting the democrats to overreact we have right. to recognize uh how great a politician he is in the sense of he's here nobody else would still be here uh so that that ability to just step over the line to do something so outrageous that it gets the democrats to completely overstep any sense of norms and decency is a great talent which is a lot of wiser which is i don't even if they convict him uh, that depends very much on which case goes under and what the evidence is. And a lot of people, I think a lot of Trump supporters are going to are going to say even more so it, it, it was a sham. We'll, we'll see uh, which which one it turns out. And finally, I, I think a lot of the reason people are voting for Trump, uh, supporting Trump is poke in the eye of the elites. <laughs> the more the elites hate Trump and say he's a dictator and hyperventilate about him, the more it's not, this election is not about the 12 point policy program and the refinements to the capital gains treatment of taxes or even the economy. This equation, it's really deeply about where does American government and society go? And, and they're not voting him for policy. They're voting for him Screw you, uh, elites! And the problem is, Nikki Haley is is now per still perceived among the Trump base as as one of the insider Republicans. Let's do a couple minutes on the immigration bill, and then a few minutes on something that happened in the Senate this morning, and that's that they actually uh, voted on a foreign aid package. Uh, first, immigration. The immigration uh, bill now dead on arrival in Congress. Um, I'm confused, gentlemen. I went to the Wall Street Journal and I saw the following headline: a border security bill worth passing. I went to the National Review and I saw the headline, No to the Border Deal. And here's the rationale. National Review writes, the deal is worthy provisions, but it's not going to compel Joe Biden to do anything he doesn't want to and further entrenches a system that is fundamentally distorted by a mass bogus asylum claims. 
Okay. We then go to the Wall Street Journal, which writes, if Republicans reject this bill, they will hand Democrats an argument that the GOP wants border chaos and that they can exploit as a campaign issue. Well, anybody want to break the tie here? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. I think both are right um, because they had asked different questions. The Wall Street Journal was asking, hey, here's really tough border stuff that you've been asking for for a long time. Why don't you mm -hmm. take it and show you can get something done? Um, and the other article is saying this is a far from what our policy should be. Yes, right. all our immigration is under this under this asylum business. Uh, you know, we should have a, a sensible immigration policy that lets in lots of smart, hardworking immigrants who want to come join this country and become Americans. And that that's not in this border bill or or, or, or it's in every bipartisan. How do we fix this? Which is what needs to be done. So it's this bill was not what needed to be done, but it was a lot of what Republicans asked for. And and they're now in sort of in spite not taking it. So I think I think both are rights because they ask different questions. Neil, we're the policy versus the politics. Well, in some ways, this is an extension of our earlier discussion because uh, it it has a, a national security uh, dimension. This is not just uh, immigration in the way we used to debate it. Uh, it. It was, of course, connected politically to uh, whether or not aid for Ukraine would pass. Uh, by creating that linkage, I think the Republicans took a significant risk. I personally believe that immigration reform is a national security priority. And I think the way we should be going is to get the parties to find common ground with a view to immigration reform against China. Uh, my, my argument is you can get just about anything through Congress these days if it's against China. So let's have immigration reform against China. Let's have border security and let's uh, revamp our legal immigration system make it more Australian or Canadian, uh, that's urgently needed. The United States is passing up the opportunity of the century, which is to be the ultimate talent magnet. Uh, the talent wants to come here, uh, and instead of welcoming it with open arms and smoothing the path to uh, green cards and citizenship for the talented people of the world, we keep them out. We keep them waiting in line uh, at visa centers uh, in India and elsewhere, and we let... Uh, a free-for-all play out. Uh, and that free-for-all, all kinds of undesirables are crossing the border, including people who pose a, a threat to national security. Now, we've talked a lot about who is uh, suitable to be president, but we have to ask questions about the suitability of the people in the House of Representatives on both sides, uh, not to mention the Senate. If our legislators cannot agree on something as fundamental as securing the nation's borders and ensuring that only those become citizens who have fulfilled the legal requirements, then they should be voted out of office. And it seems to me it's Congress's failure that's most infuriating at this point. They're letting Ukraine down. A friend of mine is embedded with Ukrainian troops right now at the front line. He said the bitterness amongst those soldiers who are running out of ammunition because of the hijinks of American legislators can scarcely be overstated. That makes me angry too. They're, those guys are laying their lives on the line for a border that's been overrun by an invading army. And we play silly buggers with uh, the domestic politics uh, in the House and Senate. It's an indictment of our system that we cannot understand our own national interest better. Uh, but Neil, there's news out of the United States Senate this morning, and I want to get HR's uh, thoughts on this. Uh, the Senate held a cloture vote, which is its way to get out of filibuster, and it improved, or at least they forwarded, a $95 billion foreign aid package, the details of which include $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $10 billion in humanitarian assistance, most of which is going to go to Gaza, and, oh, by the way, $5 billion for Taiwan. HR, what do you think? Well, I think they have to expedite it, right? And we've mentioned this before that, you know, <laughs> you know, the laws of physics apply in war, right? So when you allocate that money, that doesn't that doesn't immediately manifest itself in in the form of ammunition on the front line, as as Neil's describing the this difficult situation there. There's a huge time lag, you know. And I've quoted, you know, quoted MacArthur before, you know, that every strategic failure can be summed up in two words: too late. So I, I hope that. Congress does have a greater sense of urgency about this and, and gets it done. Mm -hmm. John? 
I, can I just hear? I mean, 155 millimeter artillery shells shouldn't be a scarce thing to people who are freezing in trenches defending their country and and implicitly ours and NATO and the whole West and all the rest of it. Uh, so it just it just saddens me how we ran out of enthusiasm for even letting them defend themselves, let alone helping to win this darn war. Yeah. Neil, I'll give you the last word, but let me ask uh, one thing to you. You um, took a pretty good shot at the Congress. What about the president? Has he given a big speech on Ukraine? Where's Where's the bully pulpit? Well, he gave a big speech on Ukraine a year ago. He went courageously to Kiev and he said, we'll be there for Ukraine as long as it takes. Right. And that turned out to mean as long as the Republicans uh, don't oust Kevin McCarthy as speaker uh, and engage in obstructionism over aid to Ukraine. Right. I mean, I had... I have to say, I warned the Ukrainians. I remember saying early in the conflict when I went to Kiev in, in 2022, don't be South Vietnam. Uh, and there have been times when I felt uncannily as if that's exactly what their fate may be. I, I'm extremely encouraged to hear what you said. Uh, by the way, uh, Bill, this news had escaped me as I was on my, uh, on my way back uh, from giving lectures in Princeton. If indeed this aid can be passed, uh, that this will be a, a, a great uh, a great blessing and a, a, a welcome relief to the troops in Ukraine. Okay, very good, gentlemen. Let's move on to the lightning round. Lightning. We're doing something new for the lightning round. We are going to try moving forward to include at least one question from our viewers. And today we have a question from Ed in Alberta, Canada, who writes the following. Having a prosperous Africa would be of great benefit to the world. To that end, the rich nations of the world spend incredible amounts of money on aid to Africa with endlessly poor results. Would it not be better for Western nations to choose one nation on which to concentrate and focus their money? Neil, a demonstration project, if you will, for Africa. What do you think? Well, it's not really true that they spend incredible amounts of, of money on aid to Africa anymore. That Those days are long gone. Uh, actually, many African countries are in a debt crisis at the moment because of the money that they borrowed uh, uh, when interest rates were low, that they're struggling now to repay. There are currency crises, including in Nigeria, one of the most important uh, economies in Africa. And the real issue is not aid, it's debt, debt restructuring and, and debt relief for countries that are in a really desperate uh, situation. It, it, it doesn't make sense to just pick one country. Uh, Africa's a, a, an enormous patchwork of countries, and some are, are better governed than others, to put it mildly. Uh, there are the well-governed uh, countries, think Rwanda, and there are the disastrously badly governed ones, think Somalia. Uh, but aid is no longer really the issue. Uh, the issue is actually managing debt crises and currency crises. Aid uh, growth does not come from government to government aid. Uh, the U.S. did not grow to be who we are because the British sent us, sent the U.S. government aid. <laughs> uh, the number one thing we could do is buy what they have to sell. How about that? Uh, okay. HR? Well, I just I agree with John, you know, that you have to get away from aid and towards sustainable development and, and economic relationships. And as Neil said, you know, a restructuring of the financial tools that are available and uh and 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 working on the, the debt problem. All of these should be at the top of the list. And you know, th there's been a movement to do this for quite some time. Uh, a scholar named Mark Moyar, who's going to visit us uh in the in the coming weeks at, at Hoover, has a great book called Aid for Elites. And, and, and essentially, he argued that you know, aid as traditionally delivered really just aids the elites in many of these you know, uh, governments that have corrupt uh, you know, countries that have corrupt governments. And so sustainable development and, and, uh, and then investments that actually get a return on investment in contrast to, to some of the Chinese investments, for example, in the continent, which are dwarfing you know, U.S. and other, other uh, loans, really. They're predatory loans uh, that, that are aimed at creating servile relationships uh, with African countries as they are extractive in nature as well to get the kind of raw materials and minerals and so forth uh, that that, uh, that China re requires, you know, to dominate in, in manufacturing and so for, uh, batteries and everything else. So, you know, I, I've had an African friend describe this to me as he said, what China is doing is a new form of colonialism. So I think it's important for us to provide an alternative development model. Uh, Ambassador Mark Green, when he was the head of USAID, was a big champion of this. We had, we initiated <laughs> You know, a program in the Trump administration called Prosper Africa, uh, which I think was well conceived. I, I wasn't around long enough to see how well executed it was. And of course, the president uh, allegedly made some comments uh, about countries on the continent that, that set us back a bit. But I'll tell you, when you when you engage most African leaders, you're pushing on an open door. 
because they want America present in, in, on the continent and they want an alternative uh, to what they see as China's effort, you know, to 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 uh, to actually get them to sacrifice sovereignty uh, and uh, and sign up for a servile relationship with Beijing. Okay, one last question. It's a perennial question on Goodfellows. And for Neil Ferguson, it falls somewhere between a colonoscopy and a root canal. Neil, who do you got in the Super Bowl? Well, obviously, uh, it's going to be Taylor Swift who wins the Super Bowl. <laughs> I've still managed to uh, get to my uh, 60th year without hearing any songs by Taylor Swift. I'm, I'm rather proud of this achievement. I couldn't hum you a single Taylor Swift hit. But it's extraordinarily difficult to avoid Taylor Swift Uh uh, on the internet, uh, on the uh, on the train, at the airport. So uh, the clear winner of, of Super Bowl 2024 is Taylor Swift. John? I like that idea. I was, I was going to say 49ers just at a local, uh, um, yeah, you know, civic duty. <clears throat> but Taylor Swift is is a, a wholesome young woman who, who sings songs about breakups, uh, you know, <laughs> Considering all the other stuff we've talked about of politically polarized America, how how, how great and 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 of course the focus of the craziest conspiracy theory, uh, Mark Mark the Trump era. So I'll, I'll I'll agree with I'm voting for Taylor Swift. Yeah, the running joke is Republicans live in fear of her endorsing Joe Biden, yet ninety five percent of her songs are about choosing the wrong guy. So. Go figure. All right, HR, you might be the only one. Oh, yeah, maybe we need a net. We'll have a national breakup song. Maybe she can do that for us after the next election. Okay, HR, I turn to you because you're the one of the only three people in this tree who might actually watch the game. <laughs> you know, I think we'll be on an airplane, but I'm going to tape it, you know, and I think that's the way to watch is to fast forward through all the commercials and everything. Hey, but you know, I, I've got to go with the Niners. I mean, when I was when I was a little kid, I was of course I'm an Eagles fan, and we're not going to talk about about the Eagles' complete collapse at the end of the season. But uh, but but uh, you know, I, John Brody was like one of my heroes when I was a little kid, and then Joe Montana, all the great quarterbacks uh, that that San Francisco had. And you know, you can't you can't help but be impressed by this guy Brock Purdy, right? I mean, here's a guy, last guy in the draft, right? The the nickname, you know, the the, the uh, you know the, the the word is that that person who's drafted last is called Mister Irrelevant. And, and he's leading them to the Super Bowl. So, and, and then, of course, you know, from a Stanford connection, you've got Christian McCaffrey, who is right. a freaking animal, man. That guy, if you haven't seen his workout videos, you know, <laughs> that guy is phenomenal athlete, you know, and and uh, and just watching him is uh, is, is a real uh, a real pleasure, too. So, hey, I, I think, um, you know, I've got to go with the Niners. Okay, we're going to leave the show there. Neil's got a plane to catch. John, I'm sparing you mercifully from a rugby question I had teed up. <laughs> hey, Gentlemen, the Six Nations is going on. Question. Hey, that's Scotland-Wales match. Killer match, man. And I, I, <laughs> <laughs> no Super Bowl can be as exciting as Six Nations rugby. I'm sorry. That, was, gonna, that, aged, that aged me. I'm sure my beard is whiter because of that game. We played for the first half and more or less threw it away in the second uh, I, I feel at least 10 years older than I was in the last show. John, what I was getting to is Netflix has a eight count them eight installment documentary on the Six Nation Rugby Contest. If you're not doing anything on a Sunday, John, what a great way to pass the day. I'll find something hey, else I'm telling you, and the, fir the first episode of Scotland is pretty cool. It's a, it's, a, it's a really well done Netflix series. I hope Americans watch it and get into rugby because, you know, hey. Rugby World Cup's coming to America 2031. <laughs> get ready. Get ready. Yeah, yeah. I'll make sure to go. I'll go to England. Great conversation, guys. Neil, go catch your plane. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll be back soon. Till then, take care. Again, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.